All right, 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 18 is where, is where we are. Brothers and sisters, this is a, um, this is a very hard passage. Um, and it's just one of those passages where I feel like I, I have to wound. Um, because God is wounding his servant, and therefore I would, be, I would now be preaching the text rightly if I tried to skip over it. It's also hard because it's five chapters. Uh, it's sometimes to rightly understand the scriptures... Um, as you're seeking to communicate, you must look at the forest and not the trees. Uh, we're taught to read the Bible, usually most of us, by reading Paul, which there you want to look at the trees uh, very closely. But uh, here, I think in order to understand what is going on, we do indeed need to look at five whole chapters. It's a large chunk. I'm not going to read five chapters this morning. Uh, so uh, instead, I'm going to give you the context by simply doing a flyover of, um, of these five chapters. So the first point of sorts this morning, we'll call it a point, is the context. And you'll see why I call it that in just a minute. So turn your Bible to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13. That's where you want to be. You want to have it open because we're going to be moving through as I'm going to go through and summarize chunks of this, uh, this, these five chapters this morning. So chapter 13. If you remember, Weber, Ben Weber preached last week on the great sin um, that is, David is very famous for and his adultery with Bathsheba and then God's um, calling him out through the prophet Nathan. Um, and then chapter 13, as life, he, David hopes life will get back to normal, but we see that things don't. Uh, things for David from the point of his sin with David and what well, was Bathsheba go from bad to worse. In chapter 13, there is this horrific story within David's family in which one of his sons, a guy named Amnon, one of the sons of David, lures and traps and then rapes his um, half-sister Tamar. Um, and what we see there is that Amnon, um, it says he loves his sister, but after he has assaulted her, that he begins to treat her like trash, or continues to treat her like trash, you might say. And it says that his love was turned to hatred. Now, there were two reactions to what has happened to Tamar that we'll see if you look through that text closely. It's first from David, Tamar's father, is that we see that David gets very angry, but David does not do, take any action against his son Amnon. David, with, um, as legions of expositors have looked at, is that David finds himself perhaps a prisoner of his own folly, uh, maybe worn out from his own repentance or also even putting himself in a place where he is not morally able to call out his son because his son has in many ways acted just like his dad has. The other reaction we see is from Absalom, uh, Tamar's full brother, and what we see in, tame, in, in Absalom is we see hatred, but without, actually, without any mercy or grace. Absalom hated Amnon because he had abused Absalom's sister. And his, Absalom's hatred, as we'll see this is, throughout these passages, is Absalom is a calculated guy. He waits for quite a long time in order to get his revenge upon Amnon and eventually calls together all of, of David's sons and daughters for this great uh, festival, a sheep shearing festival. I guess that's a big deal back in the ancient Near East. And so they're, they're going to shear some sheep. But while they're there, uh, Absalom gets Amnon drunk and takes his life in front of all of his brothers and sisters. And in verses 34 through 37 of chapter 13 is where we see that. And then Absalom, after slaughtering and bringing his own kind of vigilante justice to bear upon Amnon, Absalom flees and runs to another country for three years. 
I'm going to give a brief note on this because I'm planning to say more on this chapter in the future. I am not going to simply skip over 2 Samuel chapter 13 and its implications. In light of our cultural moments with things like the Me Too movements that are bringing some things to bear, what is happening is not that the Bible has changed. It's that our cultural moment is pushing our noses into the places of the Bible that we historically had rather not go. Places like the story of Tamar or the other Tamar who was violated by her father-in-law or these many stories of rape and assault that are brought up in the scriptures. We're going to address that at another point. I personally did not feel prepared to do that, nor had I prepared our child care workers to take on a larger load of kids that we would want to remove maybe for that particular time together, but we will come back to that in that chapter. Chapter 14, we move on though. So we see this great injustice, this horrific story going on in David's family. Chapter 14 then tells about how Absalom comes back from his sojourn. After fleeing from, the, from Israel, he comes back to Jerusalem via the intrigues of Joab and, another, and a woman who uh, gets David to bring uh, Absalom back to Jerusalem. But what we see here is that David, once again, a man who fails to mete out justice. He doesn't carry out justice and bring consequences upon Absalom for his vigilante acts of murder against his brother. And so what we see here is that at the end of chapter 14, the stage is set for chapter 15, where David and Absalom, while Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, David and Absalom are not restored into fellowship with one another in any real way. There is a political restoration, but not a familial son and father restoration. Then we move on to chapter 15, and this is where 15 and 16, and these chapters need to be seen together where things really begin to heat up. It begins with Absalom setting the stage for his coup that we're going to see in these passages. The stage is set for because his, his relationship with his dad is, is estranged. There is a rift between the two of them. And Absalom takes advantage of his father's growing weakness. And what is his father's growing weakness? That his father has not shown himself to be a just man. That David has carried out his own act of injustice in the murder of of Uriah and taking by his own power of a woman, another man's wife. And we also see that David is a man who is weak in regards to carrying out justice against his own family, both against Amnon and then against Absalom. And Absalom exploits this weakness if you look at the verse five verses of chapter 15, in which what Absalom will do is he'll go to the gate of Jerusalem and he'll come He'll grab people who are coming to bring their grievances to the king, but maybe they can't see him because there's a long queue or right the court dates have been backed up. And Absalom will hear their cases, and but Absalom has the great luxury of not actually having to rule and root out justice. He can simply sit there and listen and bring a foe justice. He can say, "Oh my goodness, if if only I were the judge of the land, then I would I would bring justice." For you, I would make sure that things are done rightly around here. Absalom is the classic example of the upstart politician who's never had to lead and therefore critiques the incumbents and can point to all their failures without actually having to prove that he has done anything himself. He's able to sit on the sidelines and carp about all that is wrong with David. And he can simply claim the justice about the justice that he would bring. But in this, he builds up for himself 
a following within Israel. And eventually Absalom senses that he has built up enough goodwill and enough following with amongst the people that he can now execute his long-awaited coup. And we see this carried out in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. And David can see the writing on the wall. He is in trouble. And the only way to escape Absalom and this growing crowd that are going to seek to come and remove him from the throne and put him to death is that David must flee Jerusalem. So we see, in some ways, is back to the wilderness for David. He flees, and the, the, even the topography of chapter 15 and 16 show the humiliation of David as he comes out of Jerusalem and he goes down towards the Jordan. That he is moving from a place of flourishing to a place of wilderness, a high point to a low point. But in the midst of this, we see a couple of accounts in chapters 15 and 16 in which the lines are drawn. In chapter 15, we see three different groups of people, or three men in particular, who will come and surround David, a couple priests um, who will come around him, the Levites and priests, and then a man named Ittai, the Gittite, a man actually from Gath and Philistia, who will come and support David. And then in chapter 16 are the accounts of those who are against David. There's a guy named Ziba who, is, um, who works for as the servant of Mephibosheth, and he is going to use this political moment in the midst of the power vacuum to win for himself um, goods and services, uh, and, and in this he is showing himself to be coy and simply just a political mover and shaker. And then we see this, this awful, this lowest of moments, it seems like, when Shimei, who is one of, of the household of Saul, a relative of Saul, who stands upon a, a hill overlooking David as David is fleeing with all his family and they're weeping and he's throwing rocks on David and dust on David and he's cursing David. And then perhaps the most damaging, though, is Ahithophel, one of David's chief advisors, the man who's considered the wisest man in all of Israel, goes not to David's side, but chooses to side with Absalom. And chapter 16 ends with Absalom consolidating. Chapter 15 begins with him beginning his coup. Chapter 16 then ends with Absalom consolidating his coup and drawing a line in the sand by sleeping with ten of, of David's concubines left in Jerusalem. And the stage is now set and the battle lines are now drawn. That brings us to chapter 17. A critical moment in which what we see there is that there are two counselors that are sent into Absalom's presence, Ahithophel the wise, and Hushai, who is sent back by David in chapter 15 to go and try to disrupt Ahithophel's advice to Absalom. And Hushai succeeds. And for some reason, Absalom listens to Hushai instead of Ahithophel. And this brings us to chapter 18, where the account now comes to a head, and the action falls out, and the story is revolved. And you would think that chapter 18 would be about this epic battle, because it is essentially all of Israel, it's a civil war. All of Israel has either gathered around David or around Absalom. And you would think there would be these great details about this, this civil war that would go on essentially over the course of all the geography of Israel. But that's not where the focus is at. The focus is at, at with Absalom and with David, as, as David's men and his three armies that he's going to send out, go out, David calls out to his, his leaders and say, be gentle with my son Absalom. And it's about David's anxiety with his son. And then it goes on to share about how Absalom is put to death. That Absalom, who has the most famous hair in all of the Old Testament, other, maybe, that other than um, maybe Samson, Absalom, who's got this great head of hair, he is a Fabio of Israel, he gets his hair cut or cut off, cut off in the midst of a, a tree branch, and he is left hanging and swaying as his donkey keeps going and his hair is caught in the tree. And Joab and his men find him and they put him to death. And the chapter ends with David hearing about the death of his son. 
And perhaps with some of the most grievous and awful words in all of Scripture in which David cries out for his son, my son, my son, would I have died in your place? And what we see is this, is that David, David is saved in these accounts. David is indeed saved. The kingdom is his. He will remain king over Israel. David is not put to death, but David is full of sorrow. David is saved, but he is full of grief. And sometimes you can't fully understand the context of something until you understand the background. There is a background here that is going on in chapters 13 to 18. If you remember, after after David's great sin with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he prophesies over David. And most often we focus on the fact that he prophesies to David that his son, the fruit of that adultery with Bathsheba, the son of that adultery will will not live. But he says more than that. In chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, if you want to turn there, there is a critical prophecy that Nathan speaks over David's life. And here's what he says. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That is the background, and that is the context of what we're looking at this morning. But the context tells us something about what we're looking at here in these five chapters. The context of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, tells us this, that there are consequences for sin. That's the second thing I want to look at, and really the primary thing I want to look at this morning. There are consequences for sin. There are natural and often, and all of them are God-ordained consequences for sin. The principle is this. What a man reaps, what a man sows, he reaps. What a man sows, he reaps. There are consequences for sin. Just let's walk through just a little bit again that, those five chapters. In verses 13, you remember when David was having his, his affair with Bathsheba, and he calls uh, to, 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 this, to his servants and says, Go get me that woman. And they say, wait a second, that's Uriah's wife. They're calling David out, saying, no, 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 this is someone's wife. This is someone's mother. This is someone's daughter. But David didn't think that way. He simply thought of her as an object of his own pleasure. And how does that play out in his own life? Amnon, his own son, will look at his half-sister Tamar as merely not someone to be loved and protected, but someone who's merely an object to be taken for his own pleasure and then cast aside. Chapter 13 continues. Why is David so passive with Amnon? Why does he not pursue justice? It says he is angry, as any good father would be, but he is passive. Here is a man who is morally compromised by his own past, that he has lost the courage to confront his own children when they follow in his own footsteps in their sinfulness. He doesn't seek justice, so what happens? His own son Absalom must take on his two-year scheme of vengeance on Amnon and seek out his own vigilante justice. He gets Amnon drunk and then murders him now what does that sound like sounds like his father who sought to get Uriah drunk and then murders him chapters 15 and 16 before we get to that though what we're seeing in chapter 13 is a pattern of violence that is entering David's family remember the prophecy in chapter 12 now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house 
They echo through chapters 12, or chapters 13. Chapters 15 and 16, Absalom is overthrowing his dad, and again David's sin comes up to surprise him. And Absalom gets a surprise political endorsement. The young upstart gets the endorsement of Ahithophel. Now, here's the question. We're going to look at Ahithophel more clearly in just a few minutes. But why in the world would Ahithophel, this wise of wise counselors in Israel, why would he support Absalom and not David? Well, this is where one of those times and where you've got to pay attention to the names given at various places in the Old Testament. Because you know who Ahithophel's granddaughter was? Bathsheba. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba and perhaps is a man who holds a grudge. And he brings it to bear here. David is not someone who is considered in his mind to be trustworthy and throw, he throws his lot behind Absalom. And then because of Ahithophel's advice, Absalom does the falling abhorred thing at the end of chapter 16. A thing that is, apparent, that is unspeakable to us, that he takes ten of David's wives that were left in Jerusalem, his concubines, and he sleeps with them, but not simply just in private, but what does he do? He sets up a tent on top of the roof, the very roof in which David peered down upon whom? Bathsheba. And he sleeps with them in the presence of all. Once again, if you look back at chapter 12, what does it say? That there will be one from your own household who will seek to usurp you, and your neighbor will sleep with your wives, not in private, but in public. Little did David know that it would be one of his own sons. This whole section is a playing out of consequences, and the point is this, is that God brings consequences to bear even among those who sin. Now understand this, there is definitely forgiveness for David, and this is what is critical to see. That God's consequences for sin are not against his forgiveness. At the end of of 2 Samuel chapter um, 12 at verse 13, when David says, I have sinned, Nathan says this, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. That's that verbiage. This is is incredibly strong language in the Hebrew. This is, God has put your sin away from you as far as the east is from the west. This is the kind of forgiveness that, that David sings about and talks about in the Psalms. And yet, despite the forgiveness... There are still consequences. That your sins will very often come back around to you. David has seen a beautiful woman and taken her. Amnon sees a beautiful woman, he rapes her. David has used a sword to kill Uriah. Absalom uses a sword to kill David's son, Amnon. There are consequences to sin, and you must understand the tension here. That while God will put away your sin, As far as the east is from the west, there are often temporal consequences for your sin. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul puts it this clearly. Galatians, you know what Galatians is? Galatians is the most militant book on grace. David says to those who don't believe in grace, you might as well go emasculate yourselves. That's how how militant he is in defending grace. And yet in Galatians chapter 6, he says this, God will not be mocked and he will not be deceived. You will not, you will not appro- make reproach upon the grace of God. We don't like to talk like this. We like to talk about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, but understand this, that if you break God's law, his law will break you. If you, if you break God's law, his law will break you. It is not because God is vindictive and malevolent. It is because God is good and his law is an expression of his good character and his law is there for your flourishing, for your good. And therefore, when you break the law of God, bad things happen to you. Listen, there is a law, it's called the law of gravity. 
And you may say, I don't really like the law of gravity. I don't agree with the law of gravity. And that's fine. And you can go up in a plane and you can decide and you can jump out of that law. But guess what? That law, you can break that law. But that law will break you. A few seconds after you jump out of that airplane... If you want to know what God is doing, God is telling us this, that if you want to flourish and if you want to do well, then you must heed what your creator says. If you break the law, it will break you. And I want to challenge you on this because there will be those who, 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 perhaps you've had children who've done this, who get, who've grown up in the church and they've, they've read the accounts of David, but the problem is if only we only read half the accounts, we end up with terrible, terrible theology. Because I've had people sit in my office before and they've looked at me and they've said, listen, and they're leading a life, moving, they're making a mess and a wreck of their life and living absolute clear immoral lifestyle. And they're going, but God loves me, right? I mean, look at David. He's a murderer and adulterer and yet he's called the man after God's own heart. And my answer to that is, yes, look at David. Look at the rest of the story. Look what happens to David in chapters 13 through 18 and frankly to the rest of David's life. So this is the same for those. But this, this consequences, understand this, are not for, just for David, they're for his family and they're for his nation. Therefore, therefore, when we go to the ballot box and our options are simply adulterers and those who protect adulterers, we should not do so defending them, but we should do so with tears in our eyes because there are consequences for putting serial adulterers in places of power. And there are consequences for our personal sins. David made choices in one day with Bathsheba that made a shipwreck of his life, his family, and his nation. We cannot, we should not ever minimize sin, and it is, yet it is so easy to do that. I, and and these, are, these are hard words because we want to say that these things would never come true. But parents, there are consequences for your harsh words to your children. When it, 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 we, we, we should not, unless God tells us, make a one-to-one correlation between a child's rebellion and parents' failings. It is not ultimately you who's responsible, but, but, there are consequences. There are consequences when you have an overly critical spirit towards your spouse. You think it, it won't damage their souls? The thing that you can do that for year in and year out, that there will not be consequences, natural consequences, then you are wrong. We have become a culture that laughs at the worst of sins. In fact, even as parents, in regards to this, we laugh at the idea, we kind of joke about it. Yeah, I know my kid's going to be in counseling one day. Listen, that's really funny when your kids are young. Until, Until your kids actually are in counseling one day, and then it is utterly and absolutely grievous. There are consequences to bear. Look at David and learn. Listen, there was a, a, an old quote by John Owen that John, uh, John Piper popularized again a couple years ago that needs to be come back to us, which is this. In the midst of the gospel-centered industrial complex, we've lost phrases like this, which is this. Be killing sin or kin will be, sin will be killing you. Look at David. Yes, he is a man after God's own heart. Yes, he is a man who is forgiven. But he is also a man who paid dearly temporal consequences for his sin. Now look at, listen, I'm not trying to add guilt upon your guilt or crush you because many of you are haunted by your past. There is both total forgiveness and yet in God's economy there can be also temporal consequences. The law of your father is a good thing and is for your flourishing and the law is the kindness of God, is a gift of God and God as a good father is willing to use the law 
to bring us back and bring us to the end of our delusions about ourselves and our lives, to help us taste the bitter harvest of the consequences of our sins in order to bring good things to bear in our life. He does not do that because he hates us, because as Hebrews tells us, he, does it, he disciplines those he loves. And if that means like Jacob, you limp for the rest of your life, then he is happy for you to limp if that means you get more of Jesus. If that means you more fully rest upon him, then that limp is worth it. And therefore, we must say this. For those that are limping this morning because of God's discipline, some of you are limping this morning because of God's discipline in your life. You have children that won't speak to you. You have a marriage that is cold. You have have a scattering of relationships in your past. Listen, and you are dealing with the fact that you are now limping, but let's, let's understand this as we move to comfort. That these are the stories that God most likes to write. He, he most uses limping people. In fact, often you, I will say this, you can experience and you can see the power and the beauty of God's redemptive work most clearly in the context of God's fatherly discipline. I experienced this existentially with my own sons, that the, often the connection, the time of intimacy in which I'm, I feel most close to them, in which I, they most seem to be willing to receive my love, is in the midst of discipline. That after I have been a wounder, that I'm then a comforter. And therefore, not only do we want to see the context and the consequences of what's going on in these chapters, but we must also see the comfort. For there is mercy there is linings of mercy even in the midst of the discipline. You see, the middle of the story of David's life, the key moments, we think of the, the storybook Bible moments of David's life, right? David and Goliath. David and Bathsheba. But these are not, this, these are not the center of the Davidic story. They are significant parts of it. But the center part of the David story is 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, in which God comes to David and says this, I promise myself to you, you will be king, you will be certain, and there will be one who will come from you who will rule over all the earth. And understand this, that as sons and daughters of the king, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus, there is a promise for you that even as a people who often run away from that promise, even as a people who are experiencing the consequences of sin, there is a promise there to still cling to, which is this, that I will never leave you or forsake you, even when it feels like all you're experiencing is the darkness of my discipline. And so I want to comfort you with three things, three linings of mercy that I want to see in these texts within these five chapters. Three ways in which David is comforted. First, David is comforted by loyal friends in chapter 15. You know, it's so much of the, of the context of, of Absalom's coup is its treachery. It's, ba- it's knife in the back. David's friends will go over to Absalom. His own son is the leader who's trying to kill his father and take over his throne. This is a lot of treachery, but in the midst of a sea of treachery, there is an island of faithfulness in the most bizarre of places sometimes. The, the place that is most clear in which is there's a guy named Ittai the Gittite. Ittai the Gittite. He's from Gath. You know who is also from Gath? Goliath. Remember we talked about this before, David is tra- traipsed into Gath before he is persona non grata in Gath, and yet this man, Ittai the Gittite, it, it, see, it shows in this text that Ittai has just now joined David, and yet what we see here is that Ittai looks at David and he says this, David says, go on home, 
This war has nothing to do with you. And Nittai says, no, 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 no. I will stay with you. I will stay with you. Whether deliverance or doom, I will stay with you. One of God's great ways of supporting you, even when you're in the midst, perhaps, of his own discipline against you, is that God will provide you the mitigating mercy of good friends who will walk through the darkest of days with you who will be there alongside of you, that in the midst of the sea of treachery in your life, whether it's from your spouse or a child or a friend or a parent or a coworker or a boss, that in the midst of that treachery, there will be friends who walk closely beside you. One of God's weight rays is to send you a friend who will stand with you. Ittai's are God's great gifts of mercy, linings of mercy in the midst of his discipline. The second thing I want you to see is that David is comforted by the providence of God's. And we ought to as well. Down in chapter 17, there is a, there is a moment of crisis within these five chapters. There's a, there's a critical moment in the civil war between Absalom and David. And the critical moment is this. David is on the ropes. They are exhausted. All he and his men, nobody's been, not very many people have been able to gather around David at this point yet. They are, they are fleeing Jerusalem with whatever they can carry on their backs. They are weeping and exhausted. They are trying to get away from Jerusalem and from Absalom and his power center as quickly as possible. And it's in this moment that the great counselor Ahithophel comes to Absalom and says, Go sick him now. David is weak. You send the army out now while he's in this place. Go get him. And yet Absalom doesn't take Ahithophel's advice. Why? Now, now, real quick on Ahithophel, not only is he Bathsheba's grandfather, but we also need to understand this. He is the Bill Belichick of counselors in Israel. He is the Nick Saman. It doesn't matter what he touches, right? You put a freshman backup quarterback in at halftime, it goes perfectly well. That's Ahithophel. Right? Everything goes well for Ahithophel. Every little bit of advice, everything, every plan that he makes, it is perfect. Everybody looks. The place of, of despondency for David is when he finds out, he goes, oh my goodness, Ahithophel has gone to Absalom's side. We are now in deep trouble. That's who Ahithophel is. So why in the world would Absalom not take Ahithophel's advice? There is in this story, there's something that's going on back in chapter 15 in which in the midst of this, when David finds out about Ahithophel going to Absalom's side, he actually cries out to God and says, God, would you frustrate Ahithophel's advice? And it's in that moment, God provides providentially and a most not very pretty version of a counselor, a guy named Hushai. Hushai looks like the opposite of Ahithophel. When we are introduced to Hushai, Hushai is, has been crying all day. He has snot all over his face. He's been running from Jerusalem. He has thrown dirt all over him. Hushai is a mess. And David says, Hushai, you're God's answer to prayer to me. I want you to get yourself cleaned up. I want you to go on back into Jerusalem, and I want you to be my double agent, my spy within Absalom's court. And I want you to frustrate Ahithophel's advice. And Hushai does, and he frustrates Ahithophel's counsel. And in fact, they follow Hushai's advice instead of following Ahithophel's advice. Now the question still is why? Well, God tells you why. The writer tells you why. In chapter 17, verse 14, it says this. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel and bring harm to Absalom. This, understand this whole story is moving along with scenes and dialogue and actions. And for the first time, we, the writer, the editor gives us this little look, this, this look behind the curtain. That the God who appears to be silent in the midst of this, the God David, in which David is crying out to God, and yet in the midst of this, the writer shows that God is working, God is behind the scenes, and God is in control. And this intricate story of deceit and cunning and betrayal, and yet God is in control of all of those people and all of these unlikely circumstances, and that God is actually ordaining, yes, consequences for David's life, but a mitigated consequences because of the, the, the mercy of his providence in David's life. That God can appear absent, but he's actually moving powerfully behind the scenes on our behalf. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> but the Bible never seems to back away to hold this, this tension of this mystery. Is that, that, that we are held responsible and yet God is in control. The Apostle Peter talks about it at Pentecost in which he says this to the crowd. This Jesus, who was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed responsibility, and yet God's plan. God ordained it, and yet you are guilty for it. And it is a mystery, but it is not an irrational mystery. You have to understand the difference. It is not solvable by our brains. It is a mystery, but it is not irrational. Hushai thought he was David's agent, but he was really God's agent for David. Functioning to frustrate Ahithophel's advice. And despite all that David had done, despite all the consequences, remember this, that because of God's providence, that God will still bring about those promises by his own providence and his own sovereignty. And the comfort is this, that through us and often in spite of us, God's good purposes for us will always prevail. Second Samuel chapter 7. God has promised things to David. I will save you. I will preserve you. I will preserve your throne. I will preserve Israel And yet, I will do it even in the midst of your own failures. What this means is that no matter what you've done or where you've, what has been done to you, there is no plan B for your life. All that has occurred so naturally and humanly and perhaps even tragically behind those conversations that seem so innocuous in the grocery store and behind all the broken hearts and sleepless nights that God is moving and he is working. Yes, even in your consequences. This writer tells us the story that with such blink, unblinking honesty about how awful everybody in this story is. Everybody's just awful. And yet in that, in, our, in David's failures, in Absalom's failures, in Amnon's failures, in Ahithophel's failures, in all these weak men like Hushai, God is doing great things for his glory and for his people. Third comfort to close. Third comfort is this. David is comforted by the character of God's. To me, the most moving scene of this whole five chapters is other than when David cries out for his son. But the sign of great, I think a turning point for David is when Shimei, we see this in chapter 16, Shimei, who is a, a family member of the household of Saul, so he's got a bone to pick with David. When Hushai, or Shimei is standing up on the cliff above David and his men as they're fleeing Jerusalem and he's calling down curses upon them and throwing uh, rocks on them and then throwing dirt. You know why somebody throws dirt? You ever seen the person who's so upset they throw whatever's in their way and then they just, like the baseball manager who just starts kicking dirt? That's what, that's what he's doing. He's literally run out of rocks to throw so he's just picking up clumps of mud and throwing it at them. 
That's how much the vigor and the hatred that this man has for David. And he says, get out, you man of blood. You worthless man, he says. The Lord has avenged the house of Saul. David, your evil is upon you. Now normally understand this. David doesn't suffer no fools. He is the king over Israel. I mean, there are people who come and bring David good news that he beheads. And yet what we see here is that David takes his humiliation from Shimei, and he's actually, he says, he's actually innocent of the accusation. He was never guilty of bloodshed against Saul's household. They brought up, they brought up war against him. David did, but David knows this, that he, while he is guilty of the blood of Saul's family, that he is not innocent of blood, that he has shed blood. And David's response is this in verse 12. Now, I have to point, have a bone to pick with the ESV on this. It says this in verse 12. It may be... This is his response to Shimei, because his men are saying, hey, can we go dispatch of this guy? His head comes off just like everybody else's. Let's go take care of this. And David says this, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now understand this, in actually older translations, and in particular in the traditional Hebrew translation, if you look in the original language, that phrase, God will look at the wrong done to me, is actually God will look upon my iniquity. Now, why the incredible difference in translations? It's because the Hebrew word there for the under look on the wrong done to me can mean affliction. It can mean I, and it can mean iniquity. And I think it actually means iniquity. But David is reflecting upon, he's saying, it may be that the Lord will look on the iniquity that I have done, and yet the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. But that would be the more natural reading in the Hebrew. And David recognized this, that, the, that he deserves cursing from Shimei. In fact, he deserves God's curse upon him. David, but David was assured of forgiveness, but he was warned of these consequences. He's going, yep, God told me this was all going to happen. I deserve these curses. I deserve these consequences. And yet, the reason why I bring up that whole point about iniquity is because David is looking at this and going, yes, God sees my iniquity, and yet, perhaps in the midst of seeing my iniquity, God will repay me good. You see, this is reflecting upon something that David knows about the character of God and where he finds comfort. Is he knows this, that yes, God is a God of discipline and his love for me, that God brings terrible and sometimes awful and tragic consequences into my life, but perhaps, perhaps, because I serve a God of mercy and grace, perhaps he will relinquish. Perhaps he will mitigate his, this discipline upon me and, and, and say and reverse the curse to bring good into my life. How can, how can David dream that that's possible in the midst of the, the lowest moments of his life? Because he knows the character of God. And I want you to say this to close this morning. For those of you that are Christians and perhaps going through a season of which maybe you look at it and you go, man, perhaps God is disciplining me. But this word should give us special hope. It should give special hope to those Christians who have made a royal curse job of their lives. Those Christians who are bearing the consequences for the sins of their teenage years and their college years and their early years, and they're, and they're bearing all of these sins, the consequences, and they're looking at it and they're going, okay, okay, I know God forgives me. Yeah, yeah, repentance. But really the way they view God is this, is that God is merely tolerating me. But that's not the God you serve. Yes, God may bring bringing consequences in your life, but did you, could you glimpse David's God and the way he views God? That yes, God and his goodness and his fatherliness, in his grace, he brings justice and he brings discipline upon me. But 
Perhaps God in his goodness to me will reverse and give me not the grace of discipline, but will give me the grace of mercy. Perhaps God will take the curse of Shimei and instead of curing that curse and bringing more consequences in my head, perhaps he'll give me good instead. For you, Christian, you can know that that's absolutely the case. That you can cry this out, you should pray this prayer because this is in fact what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Therefore, here's what you can remember in the midst of discipline. That perhaps you look at your life and you're going, oh my goodness, my relationship with God, all I'm experiencing right now is the darkness of his fatherly discipline. And I feel like he's far from me. And the truth is this is that there is grounds for the hope in the midst of discipline. Because you can know this, that while these things may be, there may be temporal consequences for my sinfulness. That one, that God has ultimately taken the eternal consequences for my sin in Christ Jesus. That the law doesn't simply call for David to lose four sheep, as Ben Weber pointed out last week, right? That the consequence to stealing a man's wife or stealing a man's sheep was you had to pay him back fourfold. And what we see in David's life is he loses four sons as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. But it was more than that. Weber talked about this is that when you sin and you committed adultery, that the men were dragged out and they were essentially choked to death by the men of the city. That there is death, that there is an ultimate consequence. And yet in Christ Jesus, we know that the ultimate consequence of God's wrath and God's hell will not be brought upon us. That eternal consequence will not be brought upon our lives because of Christ Jesus. But not only that, but that reflects something about God's grace and the, the character of our God, which is this. That if you find yourself in a, in a season of severe discipline, that perhaps you would think this, that my God is so gracious, that the character of my God is so merciful, that not only has he taken care of my eternal consequences, but perhaps he may relinquish and mitigate the temporal ones as well. And therefore, my call to you this morning is this. God may, he has every right to bring those consequences to bear in your life, but perhaps if you're in that dark season this morning, the call to you is this, is to get on your knees and to cry out like David did, God, you see my iniquity. You see my sin. But you're the God who I consistently have known to take cursing and turn it into blessing. And so God, my child, is running away from the Lord and maybe in large part because I have driven them from you. And yet I will get on my knees and I will plead, God, have mercy. God, have mercy. And you can trust this, that not only has God taken away the eternal consequences in your life, but perhaps because the character of our God is one of mercy and grace, that he will hear your cry and mitigate those consequences in your life. This is both the eternal good news and it's the hope of a temporal good news, a news that we can cling to for today, even in the midst of darkness, in the midst of discipline. If you're there, will you pray with me this morning? Gracious God, um, I think as a father that um, one of the great, great fears of my life is that all my scowls and all my tone of voice and my harsh words, that, Lord, that I will pay the consequences for those things one day. And, God, perhaps I will. Perhaps I will. 
And that will be your discipline upon me to give me a limp that will break me before you and make me cry out to you. But gracious God, this day, if my own heart would hear this rightly, I pray that you'd be merciful to my children. That you'd be merciful to my wife. That the consequences of my sin that um, has a bomb radius that is destructive that God, you would be merciful to them and you would be merciful to me, that you would mitigate your consequences in my life. I pray for those here this morning who are, um, who are wrestling with these, perhaps this issue. Lord, are you bringing discipline in my life? God, I pray that they would, as David did, that they would look at you and say, God, you have every right to bring discipline. That you're a, you're a good father and even your discipline to me is a sign of your goodness. But Lord, even simply as I just did, Lord, they would be a people who, because of the character of who you are, that you have proven yourself in Christ Jesus to be so merciful, a mercy that goes beyond our sea of sin. And they would throw themselves at your feet. The God who turns cursings into blessings and consequences into rewards. So gracious God, would you do that in our midst? Would we be people that kind of faithful to be killing that sin would you be merciful in that way, but then merciful to forgive us and then mitigate in your mercy the consequences of those sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.